Good morning, church. My name is Stephen Pollitt, and I am the discipleship pastor here at Gateway, and I'm so excited um, to be able to be preaching to you, be able to, to bring the word um, this morning. And, and this is a monumental day for me because this marks something very special. This is two sermons in a row that Blake has given me the text, and it wasn't about circumcision. So we can all celebrate that after having three circumcision texts in a row. We're now on a, on a new streak, and we'll see how long that, that lasts us. Um, but again, I'm so excited to be able to be with you. Um, for those of you watching at home, I'm excited. I'm praying for you. I've been praying for you all week. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Hebrews 7. We're going to be jumping around a few other places as well. Um, but we've been in this series in Hebrews for several weeks now, and now we're coming up on um, Hebrews 7. And specifically, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. And we're going to be looking at the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus. And so now if you're at home and you've put in hours of study into uh, the, the relationship between uh, Melchizedek and Jesus and, and you know everything there is to know about it, you can shut off Facebook, you can turn off your TV, and you can have an early lunch. Um, but if you haven't put in those hours, I really want you to stay with me here as we dive into this relationship because it's something extremely, extremely special. And at first I was going to say if you're smarter than me, you can turn off your TV, but I figured that would be you know, everybody but Blake Switzer, so he would still be watching. But so again, we're going to be in Hebrews 7, um, and, and there's going to be three things that we're really going to be diving into and looking at this morning. And so it's who is Melchizedek, and we're going to be in Genesis 14 for that. It says, What is the Melchizedek's relationship to Christ? And we're going to look in Psalm 110. It says, Why is it important that we know this relationship? And we're going to look at Zechariah 6. Um, so first, I want you to open up your Bibles to Genesis 14. We're going to look at, at verses 17 through 20. It says, After his return from defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the val valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God's Most High, and he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Possession of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we find out a lot about who Melchizedek is just in this text in Genesis. So we see um, that he is king of Salem. And if you don't know where Salem is, it's actually what will end up becoming David's Jerusalem. And so he's in Jerusalem, and so he's king of, uh, of Salem. He's a priest, and he's greater in stature than even Abram. Um, because you see that he blessed them, and we're going to dive into a little bit more of that later. Uh, but he also has the ability to bless on God's behalf. And so you see he's a, a very important figure. He's a very important person in, in Scripture. We see that he's king. We see that he's priest. We see that he's greater in stature than Abram. We see that he's able to bless. And those things are very important because nobody else in Scripture other than Jesus is king and priest. And we're going to dive into a little bit of why that's so important. And so there's really, there's two um, rules of thought when you look at, at the, the scripture in Hebrews 7 and in Genesis and the, and the places that it mentions Melchizedek. There, there's a lot of people that think um, that, that Melchizedek is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, that he's king and priest. Um, but really what I think is that, that he's his, his own man and there's a strong relationship between Melchizedek 
and Jesus, and it sets a prophecy up to, to establish who Jesus is and, and establishing Him as king and establishing Him as priest as well. It's called the um, Melchizedekian order. We're going to dive into a little bit about that later, but I want you to know the two schools of thought, the two um, different ways to look at this. But again, like I said, one of the major reasons why I think that it, it isn't the pre-incarnate Christ is if you look at other opportunities in Scripture when the pre-incarnate Christ appears, whether it's to Joshua before the Battle of Jericho and a, a couple other places, you see that, that the pre-incarnate Christ establishes himself as God. You don't see in the Scripture that Melchizedek ever really establishes himself um, as God. And again, we're going to bring up a few more of those things uh, shortly here. Um, but again, uh, to repeat myself a little bit, is we're, we're looking at Melchizedek, who's king of Salem. He's not only king, but he's also priest. He's greater in stature than Abram, and he's able to bless. And so he's an important figure here. And so we're going to dive into that, that a little bit more. And so now you can flip back into your Bibles, into Hebrews 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. It says, For Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham anointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he is also king of Salem, which means king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. So in verse 3, we start to see um, this difference in, in, in Melchizedek and Jesus, but we also see there's a close resemblance because it says, but resembling the Son of God, he continues to be priest forever. We see in Hebrews, there's five other times before this that Melchizedek is brought up, and a lot of us, we miss the importance of this section of Scripture. It's very easy to just read it and, and move past it. But like I said, there's two areas of thought, and we're going to dig into more of that, of why it's so important that we look and we study and we know the importance between the relationship between Melchizedek and, and between Jesus. And so what we're going to do is now we're going to look at that relationship closely. And so we see here that, that um, Jesus is priest and king. Uh, one of the things that's very important as we study this is that kings, if you come from Judah, you can be king. If you are, come from the tribe of Levi, you can be priest, but you can't be both. And so Melchizedek and Jesus are the only two people in Scripture that are both king and priest. And we start to, to dive in a little bit more about why that's so important. We see um, from the, the previous Scripture that we read that um, Melchizedek is greater than Abram. And if he's greater than Abram, then he's also greater than the priest of the tribe of Levi because the, the priest of the tribe of Levi gave a tenth of what they have to Abraham. Abraham gave a tenth of what he has to Melchizedek. So we see this close relationship. It establishes who is really king and priest and what that means. It sets up the, the prophecy of who Jesus Christ really is. And so we're going to study here in Psalm 110, just even David understood the importance between this relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus. It says, the Lord says, to, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings 
on the day of his wrath, and he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so we see in this psalm from David that he establishes in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. So David understands that there's a Messiah that's going to come. He's going to be even greater than David. He's going to be even greater than all the, the Levitical priests. He's going to be greater than Abraham himself, the father of all of us. And what makes him greater is that he's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. From the order of Melchizedek, that relationship is extremely important. God designed Melchizedek and Jesus to be king and priest for a reason. It set up the prophecy of Jesus Christ being ruler over all of us, but also being a priest, somebody that we can confide in, find comfort in, and that we can also look to him for everything. So again, open up your Bibles back to Hebrews 7. And continuing on in verse 4, it says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers, though these are the descendants of Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent, his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom's testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So we start to see just this order of hierarchy that, that when we look at Abraham, we think the father of our, our faith, the father um, uh, of that, that there's many nations are born, and, and he's such an important figure. And then we think of the Levites, we think of, of the tribe of Levi and the order of the priests um, and the important role that they played in Scripture. But we see that Melchizedek had something very unique. Again, he was priest and he was king. It's set up the, the prophecy of the Messiah that's going to come and be priest and king. We see that, that both are greater than Abraham, that uh, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Abraham is greater than Levi. And we see what great power comes from the order of Melchizedek. And only one person could wield that power, and that was Jesus Christ. This is establishes that Jesus is our standard for righteousness. He's not only just, just Savior. He's the standard for all righteousness. That, that He's the giver of righteousness and He's also the verdict of righteousness. And this is very important that He comes from the, the order of Melchizedek because we see that He gives righteousness, that it can only come from Him. It made me think back to my, my early days in ministry. That I've been in ministry for, for many years, 16 years, and I started out as a youth pastor. And when I first became a youth pastor, I interned, I became a junior high pastor, and uh, I ran our, our at my, my first church, I ran our activity center. I would do anything um, to be able to, to do ministry, to do the things that God was calling me to do. 
Uh, and then I finally became the youth pastor at this church. And I was so excited because I was going to have the opportunity um, to preach the gospel week in and week out. On Wednesday nights, I was going to preach to all these kids. And they were going to leave every single week thinking, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. And they're all going to rush the altar and get saved. And, and I had this very fundamental view of what youth ministry was going to be. And then tacked onto that, I was going to get to have lock-ins. And at that time, I thought lock-ins were, were really fun. And now that I'm 38, I've decided that lock-ins are from the devil himself. And I can't stay up all night anymore. Um, and, and it's just not going to happen. Um, but at that time, I was excited about everything. My first ever summer camp that I got to go to was in 2004. And I didn't go to summer camp as a kid. And I got to experience it as somebody in ministry. And it was an, an amazing thing. But again, I had this idea that youth ministry was all about me. I had this idea that student ministry was going to grow because of the things that I put into it, because of the effort that I put into it. And I, I realized very early on that youth ministry and ministry in and of itself um, cannot be put on the, the, my shoulders and that weight cannot be carried by myself. I remember the first person that I got the opportunity to baptize as a youth pastor, her name was Savannah Terry. And it was amazing. It was after church on Wednesday night. Uh, she heard God's word and she accepted Jesus Christ. And I was walking around with my chest puffed out. I couldn't wait to go tell my pastor. Uh, we baptized her a couple weeks later on a Sunday morning. And I'll never forget it because we filled the baptistry up too full. And I'm wearing these fishing waders with this robe on over top of it. But the baptistry was filled, out, filled up so high when I got into it, my weight filled up the water a little bit more and it spilled over the top. And the baptistry is not like the baptistry here off to the side. It was up above the choir loft, old school Baptist. And just water is raining down on poor Melba's head. And, and I'm standing there in there and, and water is starting to run into, um, into my waders and I'm starting to fill up and it's getting heavier and I'm not going to be able to walk and get out of this baptistry. It was a total disaster from the Wednesday before that I was walking around with my chest puffed out. Like I delivered this message and little sweet Savannah accepted Jesus Christ and it's all about me. And there's a rude awakening that if it's left up to me, I'm going to flood the church and I'm going to be stuck in a baptistry forever. If it's left up to me, the poor kids that I got to go visit with or their parents were getting divorced, they weren't going to hear a whole lot. If it was left up to me, those kids that I was talking through that were battling alcohol and drug addiction um, and the different struggles of facing life as a teenager, I just couldn't carry it. As much as I was excited about it when I first started ministry, the thing that I realized very early on is what makes somebody a good youth pastor, and thank goodness we have an amazing one in Taylor Wade, what makes somebody a good youth pastor is the understanding that righteousness comes from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. What I didn't understand on that time is that it was tied to this, uh, this order of Melchizedek that established, that established Jesus Christ as king and priest and ruler of all, comforter of all. And so again, that's, that's what makes a good youth pastor. It's what makes a good pastor is understanding who we serve. And I think that's also what makes us a good believer in Christ is understanding the limits that we have and understanding the authority that Jesus Christ has. 
And so we start to see that being established in Hebrews 7. We see that starting to be established in Genesis. We see it in Psalm 110 when David himself, the man after God's own heart, understood that there was a Messiah that's going to come that comes out of the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to be king and he's going to be priest. And he's going to rule over all. We see it in in, uh, verses 4 through 7 as we see this order of Melchizedek and what it means and, and, and the understanding that, that the standard of righteousness is set through Jesus Christ, King and Priest. That's an important thing for us to know as believers. It's an important thing for us to know exactly who Jesus Christ is and why he's tied to Melchizedek. So again, there's challenges in youth ministry. There's challenges in being a pastor. There's challenges in being a believer. But the thing that sets us apart is us understanding where righteousness really comes from, that Jesus is the giver of righteousness, and he's also the verdict of righteousness. What that does is it allows us to take that weight that I was carrying early on in my ministry and say, God, I can't carry this, but you can. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to serve you with everything that I can. I'm going to do everything possible that I can do to serve you to the best of my ability in hopes that people will understand that you are king and you are priest and the standard of righteousness is set with who you are. And then my biggest prayer ever is that when they understand that that standard of righteousness, is, it's unattainable, then they realize the need for the cross. Then they realize the need for a savior in Jesus Christ. We start to really understand why he had to die on the cross because that standard of righteousness is something that I could never obtain. I realized that as a 13-year-old teenager when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And I also realized the power that comes in being who Jesus Christ is, that the tomb couldn't hold him. And three days later, there he was, alive and well, and salvation has entered our, our life. So again, we do everything that we can possibly do to serve Jesus Christ to the best of our ability and understand that his grace pours over us and understand the standard of righteousness comes from him, but also the verdict of righteousness. And what that means is if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, it covers our sins, covers our iniquities, it covers our shortcomings, it covers the things that we try to control ourselves. And Jesus Christ is saying, give it to me. I'm the standard of righteousness. Give it to me. You just serve me. Give me everything else. So again, the the last question that we're going to dive into here for a few minutes is why is all this important? Why is it important that we understand that Jesus comes from this Melchizedekian order? Why is it important that Jesus is king and priest? Why is it important that he's the standard of righteousness? So we see that in Zechariah 6, uh, verses 11 through 13. So you can read that with me again. Take from them the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both." 
So what we see in these few scriptures is the Messiah's coming and he's going to sit on a throne and he's going to be royal and he's going to be king, but he's also going to be priest and that peace is going to set with both of them and it's going to establish what righteousness really, really is and it's going to give us the opportunity to find salvation. I love this because it says, Behold the man whose name is Branch. It's referred to later on in Hebrews as well. Um, but, but I really got hung up on that as I was studying that over the past couple weeks. It says, Behold the man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out over his place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord. Behold the man whose name is Branch. That is Jesus Christ. That is King and, and Priest. And it says his name is Branch. And it got me thinking about what does a branch do? It spreads out. It provides shelter. It, it, it protects us from the sun. I grew up in eastern Kentucky. I lived in a house that was surrounded by the mountains um, in, in eastern Kentucky, and there's trees everywhere. And every single day in my childhood, I got the opportunity to run out of my back door and climb the mountains. And, and there was this one tree in particular a little bit up from our backyard that was humongous, and it branched out, and I would just sit under that tree. And I would pretend all kinds of things. I'd pretend I was an astronaut and the trees around me were my space shuttle. I'd pretend um, that I was an army man and I was hiding out from whoever my enemies were. Um, but that branch gave me shelter and it gave me comfort. And that's what it's saying here in Zechariah, that behold the man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build a temple of the Lord. He's going to branch out and he's going to establish, establish what righteousness is. He's going to set the standard for righteousness. We're going to understand that we can't meet that standard except through Jesus Christ himself. And what he's going to do is he's going to branch out. He's going to give us shade. He's going to give us shelter. He's going to give us comfort. He's going to give us peace. And he's going to rule over us so that we can understand we can't meet that. And we put all of our faith and dependence in who he is. His name is Branch. He's king and he is priest. He sets the standard of righteousness so that we can only come to him for salvation. And he does it because he loves us so much. So his name is, is Branch. He's king of priests. He sets the standard for salvation. And so I want to spend a few minutes and talk about salvation a little bit. Um, this gift of salvation that, that comes from from branch that comes from Jesus, that comes from, from our king and priests. It's an amazing gift. And like I said before, I got the opportunity to receive that gift as a 13-year-old teenager. I knew of Jesus Christ. I had been around him my entire life, pretty much. But on that day, I started to really understand that, that it wasn't me that could save myself that going to church, and, and I grew up in a Methodist church, and we had candles on the stage, and every single Sunday, um, I was an acolyte, so I got to wear a robe, and I got to, to carry this giant candlestick, and I got to light all the candles. And in my head, before I, I received salvation, I thought that's what was going to make me close with God. If I wake up early and I light these candles every single Sunday morning, then I realized it's just Jesus Christ. He's the standard of righteousness, and I can't get there. So I need them. I need the king, and I need the priest, and I need the branch, and I need the shelter, and I need the comfort. I need them. And I'm not the only one that needs them. You need them as well. So let's talk about this gift 
that, that he freely gave me, that he thought so much of me as a 13-year-old that he would say, Stephen, I want you to come be a part of this kingdom. I want you to come be a part of this priesthood. I want you to come be a part of what I have for every single person. That if they just believe in me, that they'll have eternal life. And he gave me that free gift. And so it had me thinking about really, what is a gift? And a gift um, is something that, that is given um, because somebody thinks something of you. Whether it's your birthday or anniversary or whether it is um, just a, a, a thoughtful gesture. And, and myself, I, I love getting gift cards. Like, I love being able to get a gift card, open it up, and say, I'm going to go buy whatever I want. I'm going to get whatever I want. But my wife, like, she hates the idea of giving a gift card as a gift because she thinks it's totally impersonal. She thinks that is not what you should do. You should make something. You should go get something that means something to that person. And I totally get that side of it. But I, myself, I, I love gift cards. But a gift, it establishes legacy, and it establishes something personal. And so I brought a couple gifts, a couple of my prized possessions, and um, this is a book, I, I don't know on the, on the TV screen if you can tell how tattered and worn it is, it's actually a book, it was printed in 1845, and it is a collection, the first volume of John Wesley's sermons, and this was given to me uh, by my grandfather not too long ago, there's a little note that he gave me in, in here, and let me know when he gave it to me, um, but this belonged to my great uncle, J.J. Pollock. And J.J. is someone special to me, and even though I've never met him, uh, but I have a picture in my office of my family farm that's in Kentucky. And at this family farm, there's a church that my family built. It's a Methodist church, and every single pilot um, is buried there. You can find a tombstone that's there from um, 1806, uh, George Washington Pollock. Even before that, Thomas Pollock. We've traced our legacy all the way back um, to the, the first Pollock that came from Liverpool, England, and uh, settled in Maryland. And we have all that history in that church there. Um, and what this gift does to me, it's not just a, a collection of sermons. Um, for me, it establishes a legacy of faith of my grandfather being a believer. His uncle, J.J., that invested so much in him that gave him this book. And then who knows who gave it to J.J.? But again, it establishes a legacy of believers. And, and the amazing thing that I started thinking about this gift in particular is what it does. It establishes this close relationship with my grandfather, my great uncle, and who knows who gave it to him. But it also establishes a legacy of those early believers, of Paul and Peter, who were, were um, fanatical about letting people know about who Jesus Christ was so that they could receive this very special gift that had legacy tied all over it, that legacy tying all the way back to Jesus Christ. And so the gift of salvation establishes a legacy from Jesus Christ to those first disciples, to that early church, all through the history of, of, of mankind for the past 2,000 years, through my uncle JJ, through my grandfather, and now to me, and then on to my three kids. And then I started thinking that also a gift, it's deeply personal. And so I have a gift that my wife gives me every single Father's Day. And it's a picture frame, and she changes the pic pictures in it. And so I have Caden, Carly, and Caleb here, and they're holding um, letters that spell dad. And my wife updates the pictures every single year. This is the first year I got to have Carly in my picture frame. And it is deeply personal. 
it is something that, that if I gave it to you, it wouldn't mean a whole lot. But to me, you couldn't give me $10 million for it. And your salvation is also deeply personal, even though God extends it to all of us, that we understand that he is the one that, that set the standard of righteousness and that we can come to faith in knowing him, that that is a truth for every single one of us. It's established in John 3.16. But salvation in and of itself is deeply personal. It's a relationship set between Jesus Christ, King, and priest that he thinks so much of you that he personally wants you to be involved in his life. You know, I've loved it, again, since I was 13 years old, that I've had the opportunity to know who Jesus Christ is and get to know him intimately. And get to know him more and more and more as each day goes by. That relationship for me with Jesus is deeply personal. And it's different. It's different from the relationship that you might have with him. But that salvation is extended the same. So again, this gift that he wants to give you today, it is rooted in legacy from a Melchizedekian order that established Jesus Christ as king and priest. It is deeply personal that he thinks so much of you that he knows you by name. He knows every hair on your head. He knows the weight that you're carrying right now. He knows the struggles that you're having in your relationship. He knows the struggles you're having at work. He knows the joys that you might have in your kids. He knows every single thing, and he's calling you to be a part of what he's about. Again, that's the thing that I loved about becoming a youth pastor all those years ago is the thought that Jesus Christ was calling me to be a part of something so special and so unique that he thought so much of me that, number one, he would grant me salvation, but number two, that he would call me into ministry. I still don't understand it because I have to look at myself in the mirror every day and think, God, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? But he did. He's doing that for you today as well. So again, Jesus is king of peace. Who he is, is salvation. And here's the deal. As the church, we can have conflict with one another. We can have disagreements with one another. Um, we're in a time right now when we all have different opinions about what's going on, and that conflict can exist, and it can be okay. But the one thing that God gives us through this order of him being king and priest is that there is peace in the body because he's in charge. He's the standard of righteousness. So as we conclude today, what I want you to think about, if you're at home right now and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that studying the word today, looking into to the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus Christ, that will cause you to think about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and that you will put your faith in him today. My prayer is that those of you that are home right now and you know who Jesus Christ is, but you haven't been giving him your all, you have to understand exactly who he is and what it means that he's king and he is priest. He's significant. And that significant means you give him all that you are. So today is the day that you can, can start a new commitment. Say, I'm going to get into your word. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to look for ways to be able to share the gospel. I'm going to look for ways to be able to serve you. But here's the deal. God's word demands a response. You can't just hear it and say, that was good. I'm glad I heard that. 
It demands a response. And whether that's salvation for the first time or whether that is, is renewing your commitment in Him or whether that is saying, God, I'm carrying weights that I shouldn't be carrying. I'm going to give it to you today. My prayer is that you respond to God's Word. So on the screen, you're going to see the number that you can text. And the key word uh, to, today is response. If you text response, you're going to get a form and you can fill out and you can click the response that pertains to you. And again, that's my prayer today. So I know somebody listening right now doesn't know who Jesus Christ is. But they can come to know him. And so let's pray. Lord, I just come before you this morning. I thank you so much for the opportunity we get to study your word. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity that we got to see through Genesis, through Psalm, through, through Zechariah, through Hebrews, the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek and, and the importance of understanding that Jesus, you're the plan. There's no other way to God except through you. There's no other way to salvation except through you that you are it. There doesn't need to be anything else, Lord. So I just pray if there's anybody at home right now that doesn't know who you are, Lord, that, that I pray that your Holy Spirit gives them a boldness to be able to text in this morning and that we can walk alongside of them. Lord, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit gives people sitting at home a boldness that, that, that um, calls them to respond to your word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity you give me to be able to study your word as a vocation to be able to deliver a message and that you think so much of me and that you think so much of your people that you call them to salvation. Lord, I thank you for who you are and that salvation lies in the name of Jesus Christ, the standard of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.